Hello, I hope that you are well. Welcome to this week's episode of That One Time I Dated a Mormon. Um, I hope that you have had a lovely start to November and um, it's definitely becoming more wintry. Um, with the, I know I always complain about the clocks going back, but um, I suppose it's quite nice, isn't it, with it getting um, darker towards the evenings and a little bit more Christmassy um, already near where I live. I can see a number of people have got their Christmas trees up. Um, I, I think it's just from um, kind of our um, rule as a family when I was growing up that we never thought about Christmas um, until the um, 5th of November or the 6th. We always waited until bonfire night had been done before we thought about Christmas and, and presents and things like that or, you know, Christmas shopping. Um, but it just seems to be getting a lot earlier. I think maybe because people are excited about this Christmas being a little bit more normal, um, less lockdown heavy, fingers crossed, and, um, you know, there won't be bubbles and things in place. I understand people are excited and want to get started on it early. So, um, but yeah, it's starting to feel a little bit more festive. So I hope you, that you um, have had a nice start to the winter season. Um, I'm going to be uh, looking today at um, a topic that I have spoken about before on previous episodes and it's an issue that I um, talk a lot about with friends, with family, I do a lot of reading around it, um, a lot of uh, watching and listening around it and something that I think is incredibly important and something that I'm really interested in and really passionate about, um, which is around violence towards women and in particular the phrasing of that um, and the the notion that um, it should really be called male violence towards women and the nuance and the importance of language around that entire topic. And discussion and I'm going to be looking today at um, how men can make women feel safer, how it is their responsibility to make women feel safer. It's not the responsibility of women even though it is often phrased that way in media particularly and in society. You know we train girls how to protect themselves rather than train uh, rather than train and um, teach men how to not make women feel unsafe. Um, and really, it's quite a backward way of looking at it. Um, so that's going to be the focus of today. Um, and going into that, the news this week, um, particularly over the weekend, has been the end of the conservatorship, which Britney Spears has been under for around 13 years now. And... I've spoken about it before, it's been all over the news, the um, the really abusive treatment that she's had and she's spoken out about it and how, you know, over the years, you know, even we've been manipulated by the stories that we were told by the media and that she was allowed and not allowed to talk about. And I think it's really made people think about the laws around conservatorship, around um, anyone with any type of disability and how it is, um, it seems, you know, legally so easy to manipulate that system and to have people take advantage. And obviously there are um, circumstances where people definitely need that support, whether it be financial or, or whatever. But I think it's become clear 
that it's been abused and manipulated for a very, very long time. And I think particularly with this, um, I think, again, it has raised the extreme um, bias in society and in the legal system towards men. You know, the, the patriarchy is still very much so in control and in power with um, men essentially having turned Britney Spears into a commodity. Don't get me wrong. I think very clearly women will have been involved as well. You know, she herself has spoken out that she blames her mother and her sister for it as well. But, um, you know, if you've read about it and watched documentaries, particularly the one that was released on Netflix a couple of months ago, Britney versus Spears, it really shows how it is white men that have turned um, Britney Spears and other women in the industry, I'm sure, of course, into a product. And they just sold her and took advantage of um, what they could and the um, the struggles that she was going through to, to use her for financial gain. Um, there's a podcast episode with Jamila Jamil on her podcast, I Way, where she speaks to the two women who began the Free Britney movement a number of years ago. And that's really interesting to listen to, particularly around this topic of male violence towards women, because um, the the verbal violence um, that particularly the um, and the social violence towards women in the era where the paparazzi really had control over women like Britney Spears is so horrendous when you read about how they spoke about women and how they um, would follow women you know hound them and circle them like you know hunters and prey almost and in the the episode they talk about how there was a term used by paparazzi when they would circle a woman and take pictures of her and would purposely, you know, shout inflammatory things, derogatory things, sexualize things to make her angry, to make her flare up. So then it would be a better picture and they could, you know, spin the narrative that she was a mad woman um, because they'd provoked her. But of course, you would never find that out. Um, and the term that they used when they would circle in on a woman and go to in that way was a gangbang. So even, you know, the 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 hunt of the paparazzi for a female victim to take photos of even that was incredibly you know sexualized and violent and this has just been going on for so long and um the the story that's come out through Britney Spears I think is going to be hopefully um a shift or it's a it's an opportunity I think for society and particularly the media um, to shift in terms of how women are portrayed in the media and the voice that they're given and particularly the, the control that men are allowed to have over women um, in managerial positions in the industry. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. But at least in terms of, of Britney Spears, it seems to have come to a positive outcome and something that you know she's released you know a statement on on instagram this week weekend that she she herself never thought w- would happen so i um want to talk about this issue today of male violence towards women and 
how it is the responsibility of men to make women feel safer, um, even just walking down the street, uh, rather than it being women's responsibility to talk up to, to, to make themselves feel safer. Um, one, because the story of Britney Spears has been going on this week and it's something that's been going around in my head. And also an article that I read this week about the increase of drinks being spiked and girls being spiked in nightclubs and particularly in university um, and university unions um but before i go into that particular um article i just did as i always do some reading and research around um drinks being spiked um and if you've not seen the television show I May Destroy You with Michaela Cole that I've mentioned a number of times, I thoroughly suggest you go and watch it as it really looks at the um, the trauma and the aftermath of a woman being spiked and, and sexually assaulted and the, the police reaction and the male reaction and even her own reaction, a very delayed reaction to what happened to her. And it's a really interesting and very difficult watch, but it's a really interesting watch to see how um, the pub and drink culture um, almost allows this to happen to, to, to young women. Um, so uh, there are a number of drugs that can be used to spike drinks. So there's GBH, which um, you may have heard of before. Um uh, tranquilizers uh, such as uh, diazepam and uh, ketamine as well and they can come in a powder or a liquid form and um, they don't always have a smell or don't always have a taste that's why it's so easy to pop one into a drink because um, you know a, a girl or a, or a boy obviously um, would then drink it and not realize that anything's been added to their drink um although on the nhs website um it says that usually it'll take around 30 minutes for the symptoms to kick in once someone has had a drink that's been spiked and the and the symptoms can last for a number of hours afterwards um and it's very similar to um somebody appearing drunk so it can be quite difficult to know that that something has happened that the symptoms are different and on the NHS website, it says that there are a couple of symptoms to be aware of, um, but the person might not be aware of themselves, but friends, you know, will need to uh, possibly consider if they think that their friend is maybe more than just drunk. So difficulty concentrating or speaking, um, an extreme loss of balance or finding it hard to move at all. And problem seeing. So particularly blurred vision, uh, memory loss of an evening or um, of, you know, particular hours in an evening um, feeling particularly confused and disoriented um, after waking up, especially if they've been asleep. And maybe even hallucinations that they think that they can see or hear or possibly have something touching them. Um, nausea and vomiting and you know in extreme cases um, like in the Michaela Cole show um, unconsciousness of people actually passing out um, and the um, there's a website called savethestudent.org and it gives advice on what to do if you think that your drink has been spiked or you think that a friend's drink has been spiked um, it obviously says to take a friend to A&E 
if you think your friend's drink has been spiked, to call 999. If you think that you or your friend is in danger, to report it to the police. Um, and it says that most drugs will leave the body within 72 hours, but some can leave a lot earlier, like GBH can leave the body within 12 hours. So um, it's important to try and get the friend to a hospital or to report it to the police as quickly as possible so that they can get tested. And I'm going to come back to the role of the police a little bit later, as I think that's quite an important point um, in this entire discussion of, of um, women and the role that men play to make them feel safer in society. Um, some data as well that I found um, from an alcohol awareness website, alcohol.org, they surveyed 246 people um, and they asked men and women um, when their drink, so it was men and women who knew that their drink had been spiked, this is speaking to them after the fact, after the um, event and situation. So they asked them when their drink had been spiked, so in terms of what um, kind of age range, and 52% of those asked said that they had had their drink spiked when at university. So um, in the article that I've read this week, it seems to be that there is um, a huge, um, I don't know if influx is the right word to say, but it seems to be the university drinking culture seems to be where maybe people are at their most vulnerable because they're experiencing or um, experimenting with drink for the first time, maybe. And then that's maybe why identifying the difference between being drunk and having your, dry, your drink spinked spinked um spikes sorry is a little bit different because the symptoms can often appear to be very very similar um and then they asked um what drug it was that their drink was actually spiked with um, or how their drink was spiked um and 41 percent of people um of those asked said that they didn't know they they didn't know how um, what their drink had been spiked with, what the drink, what the the drug actually was. Um, and so I think the fact that nearly half people asked didn't know what drug that they had taken. Um, maybe that was because they didn't get um tested, or the police didn't act, or maybe they didn't go to hospital to to find out what happened. It's, um, almost like an invisible crime in a way, because it seems so difficult to pinpoint what will have happened, when will have happened, um, who will have done it, and what was actually used, especially if it gets out of your system so quickly, um, within 12 hours, like um, GBH, for example. So it's a really um, quite scary and quite insidious um crime and part of drinking culture that um seems to be on the rise maybe it's just because obviously people are going back into pubs and clubs at the moment so that's why not that it's an excuse but that's why the data and the number of reports is increasing but i think because there is a new increase in um as i'll mention in the article in a moment being spiked not necessarily just in your drink but through needles um it's almost a um, like i said an invisible crime it's really difficult to pinpoint who did it and when and how um 
there's also a website called Student Beans and they offer advice on um, how to potentially notice that your drink is being spiked, um, especially if it's hard to smell or taste it. So sometimes the drink can change in appearance. So the ice in the drink can sink to the bottom of the glass. Um, they can become excessively bubbly, the drink. And it can even change in colour. So they're just a couple of things to also uh, be aware of. So the article that I read this week was in The Independent, or I, the, the sister paper of The Independent. And the, the article was about a student at the University of Birmingham, um, a girl called Amy Taylor, who was 21, who was spiked with an injection during a night out at a union bar. So her drink wasn't spiked. She was actually um, injected with a syringe by someone in the bar, um, which is um, just mind-boggling to think, A, that that can happen, um, that someone goes to that length to do this, and incredibly scary to think that people you know, have that premeditated side to them that they're carrying syringes round to purposely spike, um, you know, a young woman or a young man in a bar who's just innocently having a good time. So um, the, uh, the young woman says that um, she noticed that her arm was throbbing um, around 2.30 in the morning and she got a bruise, but she didn't think anything of it. You know, she might have just, you know, had someone bump into her or couldn't remember banging into something until she said her legs started to feel really funny. Um, she says that she began losing control of her legs and her head was dropping to one side. And um, her friends, luckily she was with her friends and her friends, you know, helped her and took her to security in the club. Who then took her to a side room so that she could be protected and safe in there. Um, and she says herself that the staff in the club handled it brilliantly and that they helped and sent her straight to A&E. And it was when they got to A&E that the doctors and nurses found a puncture mark in her arm. Um, and so her drink hadn't been spiked. She had actually been syringed. She'd been, you know, um, punctured with it, with her syringe, with, with the drug in. Um, and the Guild University of Students from Birmingham have um, released a statement, it's in the article, to say that they are going to do more to try and protect students from spiking, which will include bag searches, personal searches, metal detector wands and um, drug detection dogs on the doors. Um, and obviously that's good that they've reacted, but, you know, that's one guild in the entire university, you know, sector of the country um and that's just one nightclub you know this will be happening up and down the country in other countries obviously as well um and west midlands police have also released a statement saying that they're working closely with the university to make sure that students feel safe and that several arrests have been made and um police forces have also it says here begun reporting what is an, in, an increase in reported spikings of drinks, but also the use of syringes across the UK in places such as Nottinghamshire, Lancashire, Swansea, Glasgow and Sussex. Um, so when I was reading this, it made me remember 
um, an incident when I was at university and a friend of mine got their drink spiked. Now, I wasn't with them on the evening um, and I was about, well, first year of university, so I was 18 at the time. And um, she'd gone out with, with some friends. I can't remember why I, I hadn't gone. But um, what I remember that um, the, we were in um, student halls at the time in the first year of uni and the fire alarm went off and it was about, you know, three o'clock in the morning. We knew that a practice drill was coming. It was like um, uh, like the goss on the, you know, student halls. Is, is it tonight? Is it tomorrow? I've heard it's going to be tonight because no one wants to get woken up by a fire alarm, you know, especially a student at three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, as we were trundling down the stairs and it was freezing cold outside, it was in the winter. You know, you've never seen 18-year-olds look so pissed off to be outside. But anyway, so the fire alarm went off, we were all walking outside. And um, my friend, she lived in the same halls as I did. And I just saw, and it was pitch black, um, and I just saw kind of what looked like, a, you know, someone being, um, like, walked out. Um, I was like leaning on somebody so you know, I just assumed maybe it was someone that was like too tired and their friend was helping them walk or someone that had been out and got drunk or whatever and then I realized it was my friend so I went over and she was being like held up and propped up by a couple of the friends that she was with and they said that they'd you know kind of had to carry her back from the club they were in and kind of hold her up on the bus and everything and the only way I can describe it was she was completely unconscious, completely unconscious. Um, and she was like a rag doll. Um, her head was flopping down. Her arms were just swinging down by her side. Her legs were completely like just, I mean, th th I mean, they were doing nothing. They weren't standing up. They were just like um, kind of plasticine, almost just crumpling beneath her. Um, and her head was lolling back and it was the most um, surreal thing, but really horrible to see. It, it, she just looked like a doll, like a rag doll, just like flopping down on the floor. And um, we helped her back up to her room. Obviously, she didn't have a, you know, she was unconscious, didn't have a clue what was going on. And, you know, popped her down on her bed. And in halls, there was um, always someone on call. Um and her girlfriends stayed with her for the night. Um, I remember going to see her the next day. And she'd, you know, she was awake. She'd come round by that time. And um, I remember going in to see her. And um, some of her friends were still there. And they left. And I kind of sat and had a little chat with her. And... I, re I really remember, and it's something that's kind of always stuck in my head, kind of like a visual memory, is her uh, mascara, her black mascara, was just kind of dried, running down her face. It, like, dried in, um, like, tears, like, black tears down her face, and it dried onto her cheek on both sides. And she just, she couldn't verbalise what, what kind of had happened she couldn't remember anything she couldn't remember um being at the wherever she I mean I, like I said I wasn't there but she couldn't remember a club she was in 
anything she was drinking. She couldn't remember who she was with. She couldn't remember anything in terms of getting back to university and the halls and her room. Um, and she just cried. She just sobbed. Um, and the only thing I could think to do was to make sure that I raised it with as many people as possible. Um, because, you know, it, it would have been impossible, I think, to try and find out who had done it. Um, but to make sure that as many people were aware um, that this had happened. So I went to the um, the guild because it, it happened at the, the, the guild of the university, but there were lots of different bars inside it, if that makes sense. So I went to the university guild and I, you know, reported to them and the managers there what happened. Um, they said that they would look at security footage, but, you know, never heard back, never found anything. Um, the girl herself and her parents um, reported it to the police, but again, nothing happened. Um, you know, there's nothing found. Um, and I, um, I remember writing to, and I, and I met with the managers of the student university bars, um, because it was something that I just couldn't really let go. And I couldn't really, um, understand, you know, why it would happen and that it could happen again. And, you know, in my very naive little head, I thought that it was, you know, the spiking of drinks went hand in hand with alcohol. So I told the, um, the, the, the managers of the bar and people who I, you know, met and talked to at the student guild that they needed to have a dry bar where people can go if they're not drinking so they can just order non-alcoholic drinks or whatever. Um, because I felt that that was maybe a bar where girls could go and that they could get a drink that, um, again, in my very naive 18-year-old head, was potentially safer for them than an alcoholic drink. Um, I myself didn't drink at university either, um, which I know is mental. <laughs> but I don't know, I just, I just felt like I had to kind of try and put something into place. Um, and the university, the university did, they did, they acted on it and they put a non-alcoholic bar into the guild. Um, and I think that's still there now, actually. I think it's still there. It was definitely there for the entirety of the time that I remained at the university. Um, and reading this story this week, um, it's really made me remember that and reflect on that and how, you know, you're looking now at 15 years later or so and it's still happening, but is almost for want of a better word, become more sophisticated in, in terms of how it's happened, that it's not happening in drinks anymore, it's happening with syringes. And again, the idea of what men can do to make women safer and particularly make women feel safer when they, of course, have every right to go out into a nightclub, walk down the street in the middle of the day, in the middle of night, whenever. Um... I did do some reading around um, what can be done to make sure that, you know, you potentially keep your um, drink safer. 
So there are a couple of things suggested, like you can buy something called a nightcap, which is where um, you put like a lid over your drink so then nobody can, you know, put something in. But again, you know, to me, that is putting the onus on women to keep themselves safe when that's not really the conversation that sh we should be having. It should be more about what men are doing or not doing in order to keep women safe and to make women feel safer. Um, now, um, there was um, a, an article published in the Evening Standard in March of this year and it was in response to everything that happened with Sarah Everard. Um, and that I think has really raised the profile on female safety and what men do um, to protect women. And then since it's happened again with Sabine and Essa, and it's raised again the role that men play or should play in making sure that women feel safer in society. And there was a man who tweeted something, it's called Stuart Edwards, and he tweeted, um, I live less than five minutes from where Sarah Everard went missing. He wrote this on March 9th. Everyone is on high alert. Um, aside from giving as much space as possible on quieter streets and keeping our faces visible, is there anything else men can reasonably do to reduce the anxiety and spook factor on a street? Um, and then this tweet went viral. Um, um, in a positive way, because it was a man asking, how can we make women feel less scared on the streets? Um, and one of the, a woman that re replied to him called Julie Cohen, she said, if a woman is walking towards you, let her stay in her path and you move out of her way rather than making her move. Um, I consciously walk in the safest part of the path to access lights <coughs> and exits. Um, and so many times when I've been walking along a street, a man has forced me to walk between him and a wall. So um, it's really, I think, trying to say there that, you know, something very simple that men can do just to reduce the anxiety women shouldn't have to feel, but that they do feel when walking, is to make sure that a woman is never pinned in against a wall on a street because, again, it just um, it's just a way of making women feel safer, less closed in, less claustrophobic. Um, and it's something, I mean, you know, not every man walking down the street who, you know, walks in a particular way so that, the you know, the woman is between him and a wall is consciously doing that to make her feel uncomfortable. It's just the way that, you know, we're walking. But to maybe more consciously think, oh, how can I make the woman I'm walking towards feel more comfortable in this situation? I'll shift where I am. Um, and it's it's little things like that, and that's kind of those micro steps forward that men need to be aware of, um, and be aware of the privilege they have, um, and that um, uh, kind of the ignorant privilege that we have as men um, that we need to really reflect on. That you know, men don't feel, and again, this isn't universal, but men don't feel nervous walking down the street. So, what can we do then to make women not feel nervous? Now, I'm aware that I'm fully coming from this from my own place of privilege. You know, I'm a white man. Um, you know, I've I've not you know necessarily going to experience what it is that women experience day to day, even just walking down the street. Um, however, it's a conversation that I think men do need to have 
you know, and as you know, a member of a minority myself, um, I think just the more that we can be aware of how to make other people feel comfortable and confident and secure just in day-to-day life is incredibly important. And the more that we can do that, um, definitely the better. Now, um, I um, have mentioned before, there is a um, man called Dr. Jackson Katz, and he has been on Jimmy the Jamil's podcast, and he does lots of writing about um, violence towards women and the phrasing of that and how it should be male violence towards women. And there's a, a brilliant um, quotation from him that I've read before, but I'm going to read it again because it's incredibly timely with, with the topic that I'm on today. So uh, Dr. Jackson Katz, he says, we talk about how many women were raped last year, not about how many women, sorry, not about how many men raped women. We talk about how many girls in a school district were harassed last year, not about how many men harassed girls. We talk about how many teenage girls in the state of Vermont got pregnant last year, rather than how many men and boys impregnated teenage girls. So you can see how the use of the passive voice has a political effect. It shifts the focus off of men and boys and onto girls and women. Even the term violence against women is problematic. It's a passive construction. There's no active agent in the sentence. It's a bad thing that happens to women. But when you look at the term violence against women, nobody's doing it to them. It just happens to them. Men aren't even a part of it. Um, And he also said at another point, there is no point in being naive about why women have had such a difficult time convincing men to make violence against women a men's issue. In spite of significant social change in recent decades, men continue to grow up with and are socialised into a deeply misogynistic male-dominated culture where violence against women, from subtle to homicidal, is disturbingly common. It's normal. Um, And, you know, his comments there are brilliant because it again highlights the notion that it is, you know, we're conditioned that women need to be taught. We need to teach girls how to defend themselves. We need to teach girls how to look after themselves on the street. Well, actually, no, it's completely the other way around. We need to be teaching boys how to protect girls and how to make them feel safe. We need to teach men how to not make women feel intimidated and how to support women and other men at the same time. Um, There's also a fantastic book that I've been reading called Men Who Hate Women, um, The Extremism Nobody's Talking About by a, um, a, a writer called Laura Bates. And I would thoroughly recommend reading it. And it's a really... It's quite a brutal read, um, but it's very honest and really, really ty- very important. And I'm just going to read you one or two little bits from, from the book. So she says in the introduction, Imagine a world in which tens of thousands of women are raped, beaten, mutilated, abused or murdered every year because of the simple fact that they are women. Imagine a world in which the hatred of women is actively encouraged, with sprawling, purpose-built communities of men dedicated to fueling and inflaming the course. Imagine a world in which such hatred 
blend seamlessly with racist rage. Whores blamed for contaminating superior bloodlines, invading savages, conjured from hate-fueled imaginations, framed as plunderers of the dehumanised commodity of fragile white women. You don't have to imagine that world, you already live in it. But perhaps she didn't know, because we don't like to talk about it. She then goes on to talk about um, how um, we as society don't like to offend men, so we don't mention it. To question why some men behave in certain ways is viewed as an assault on all men and thus unacceptable. Yet the opposite is true. Tackling this problem and dismantling these pressures is a matter of life and death for our boys, which I think is a really important point that she makes. Um, and then just one final um, quote from the book. This is not just about women and girls. It is also a battle to protect the boys who are lost, who fall through the cracks of our society's stereotypes and straight into the arms of the communities ready to recruit them greedy to indoctrinate them with fears of threats to their manhood, their livelihood and their country. Now, um, a, a, a writer and activist and um, podcaster who I talk about all the time is Jamila Jamil and she is incredibly vocal on this issue of <coughs> the role of men in protecting women and the place of patriarchy and sexism. And, you know, lots of very, very um, vital issues that, that, are, that need to be spoken about in society. And she is, I think, incredibly inspirational, incredibly influential and very, very brave in the things that she talks about. She gets, if you follow her on Instagram, if you follow her on a podcast, any type of social media that she's on, she does get a, you know, a lot of, of positive support. She does. Obviously, there's community out there that, that are behind her just like I am and that advocate for her and spread her message. But, you know, she's open herself about the amount of shit that she gets as well. You know, you can just look at the Instagram feed and there's constant horrible things that are said to her from men and also from women. Um, you know, and I think that's an important point that, you know, obviously men need to step up and make sure that women feel safe in society, but women have their role as well. Definitely. Um, and um, I just think she's brilliant. She's someone that I listen to and read everything that she, you know, writes and publishes. And someone that, um, you know, to be fair, if she was the president of the US, if she was a prime minister of the UK, um, if she just ran the, the COP26 conference that was happening um, last week, I think the world would just be sorted. Actually, if her and AOC, if they just were rulers of the world, I think we'd pretty much be sorted overnight. Um, but I'm going to just put um, two points for, from Jamila Jamil forward. So when the Sarah Everard case um, was first um, presented, for want of a better word, in March. She released a tweet, um, and as you can understand, she got loads of shit for it from misogynistic men, and um, it said, it's true that not all men harm women, and that was a hashtag at the time, hashtag not all men. It's true that not all men harm women, but do all men work to make sure their fellow men do not harm women? Do they interrupt troubling language and behaviour in others? Do they have conversations about women's safety and consent with their sons? Are 
all men interested in our, in our safety. And that's a really important point that she makes that, um, you know, is it enough as a man to um, just not hurt women? Obviously, that's what everyone should be doing. But is it enough to just do that? Is that too passive? Do you need to actively call a man out who uses derogatory language about women? Do you need to call a boy out um, who maybe, you know, says something uh you know rude or, or kind of makes a, a sexist joke towards one of his female friends do you need to make sure that you don't read a certain publication because it's uh, <coughs> quite sexist in its views i'm sure you can think about certain tabloids i'm talking about there you know is it enough to be passive you know we need to be active and i've spoken about you know passive and reactive and supportive allyship before and that's really i think what jamila jamil's talking about there that it's men need to become active in their role in supporting women now she wrote an essay called tell him as an essay on masculinity and then she actually presented the essay at a conference in 2019 and it is a fantastic speech um just brilliant and i'm going to play you a little bit of it now and i would thoroughly suggest you go and watch the whole thing um, and it's on youtube you can just type in tell him an essay on masculinity even if you just type in jamila jamil's name it'll come up so this is just part of her speech we held quite a lot of power and so using the only thing that they had over us physical power they fear-mongered an entire generation into submission and controlled us for thousands of fucking years. Tell him that we work the same hours with the same skill sets and the same qualifications for less money just because of the chromosomes that we were born with. Tell him we were only recently allowed to choose who we love rather than be sold by our fathers to the highest bidder, however unattractive, unkind, unsafe, boring or old that man may be, with no question as to what we wanted or what sexuality we were. And tell him this is still going on in many parts of the world. We're still, st still second-rate citizens. Tell him what it's like to be a woman. Tell him that we have to be on guard, literally ready to protect our lives every time we walk down the street at night, walk through a park, get into a cab, take a train, go out drinking, walk to our car, go on a date, be in a lift with a stranger, or be in any basement ever. <laughs> and sometimes we even have to feel afraid in our own houses because there is a constant threat to our safety from men, both strangers and more often ones we know. And, you know, that's, that's just one extract of it, but incredibly powerful and incredibly true. Um, and I think what makes it an incredibly accessible speech is one she uses humour, as you can hear. Um, but I think that it is also <coughs> what she is suggesting there is incredibly easy. Just have a conversation and not with a woman because it's not her job have a conversation with a man about what women face every day and what men need to actively do to make women feel safer and to protect them um even as she mentioned there just walking down the street now, just going back to the um, Evening Standard article I mentioned before, where um, the, the tweet had gone viral about how, you know, what, what can men do? Um, in the article, it then actually lists a couple of suggestions that it gives to men. 
in terms of how can they they can just very simply make a woman walking down the street towards them behind them whatever feel a little bit safer um and it says things as simple as um alert women to your presence but not by engaging in conversation with them so do something as simple as be on the phone to a friend, jingle your keys, make a noise to draw attention to yourself so that you're not kind of silently creeping up on a woman, even if that's obviously not your intention, just so that a woman is aware there is a man around them, particularly in the dark. Offer to walk a friend home so that you can, um, you know, see the woman through the door, see, see your female friend to the taxi, so that again, you know, you know that she's safely in a certain place in a certain location. Um, and I think just having that conversation, just talking about it, just making sure your friends are aware, your dad is aware, your brother's aware, your colleagues are aware of what it is that women um, face every day. And talk and asking women, you know, what what can we do? What should we not do? What will help you? What will make you feel safer? Um, because again, you know, what, what Jackson Cat says is it's male violence towards women. It's what men need to do rather than what women need to do because it's not their job. It's ours. So in order to, um, you know, go and read around this if you, if you want to, and I suggest that you do, some of the websites that I've mentioned today, um, savethestudent.org, which looks at the role <coughs> particularly that nightclubs can have in protecting students um, and their, their drinks and being safer in nightclubs. Um, I would suggest you read the book um, Men Who Hate Women um, by Laura Bates. Fantastic book. Go and read anything Jackson, um, Dr. Jackson Katz has written. You know, there's lots of things you can look at on YouTube for him, lots of articles you can Google as well. Um, please go and watch the um, Tell Him essay from Jamila Jamil. As I've said, you can look at that on YouTube, listen to anything that she does on, on her Iway podcast. Um, and then Instagram accounts I've mentioned before, such as Why Don't We Discuss, Diversify Your Narrative, and following the Time's Up movement on Instagram as well. Um, and just being part of that discussion and learning um, and uh, just being aware of it and being, you know, reading about it in the news and reflecting on it is just the most important thing that, that we can do. Um, so I always finish with uh, talking about one thing one time a day at a moment. So I always say one thing I've done this week, whether it's something new or just interesting or, or happy. So um, I went to a wedding this weekend, which was lovely. One, because, you know, I was actually able to be in a room with, you know, more than two people at once. Um, and my friend who got married, um, it had been like a lot of people's events that have been postponed, you know, three or four times. It was 18 months after when it should have been. And I think just to see them and, you know, her, my friend in particular, in her dress and smiling and dancing and drinking and, you know, going around to all of her friends and thanking them and being with family. That was just really, really lovely to see. Her dress was unbelievable. Um, I wish like I could make this visual. It was just gorgeous the dress it really really was it was like a bit different it wasn't a traditional wedding dress but it was perfect for her and it was just lovely um and I think it was just a reminder that 
things are becoming a little bit more normal and we need to be, I think, very grateful for that and not take it for granted and to appreciate it. And that, you know, it's those relationships and those connections that um, I think everyone has realised are more important than ever. And I just really appreciated being able to have that evening and um, celebrate something and just to talk and just sit next to people and have a drink and, you know, just enjoy people's company for the first time in a long time. So um, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the conversation. As always, if you have any thoughts or questions, then email in. Um, I will, I promise, do an episode where I look at the emails and answer some questions. I apologise that I didn't do an episode last week, but I will um, catch up on the emails, I promise. I do respond to as many of them as I can, but thank you very, very much for emailing in um, that one time podcast at yahoo.com. And I hope that you have a lovely week and are excited for getting ready, I know it's early, for Christmas. Okay, have a lovely week. I'll speak to you soon.